Last time, on imaginary advice. The Neil family residence has found itself under supernatural assault, and only I have the tools to prosecute. I, Father David Stewart, highest-ranking exorcist in Northern Europe, voted best-dressed exorcist 2007 and 2010. The Neils greet me at the door. The house reeks of broccoli, or ghost urine, as we exorcists have come to know it. Let the cleansing begin. She hands me a folder of grotesque finger paintings, images of mother, father, daughter, and a grey figure with twelve arms, blood-red eyes, its mouth an endless black lake. The exorcism rite is scheduled for 4 a.m. If we can't outsmart this thing, we're gonna have to outstupid it. If we are going to stand any chance of victory, this needs to be a race to the bottom. I hand Mr. and Mrs. Neil the lyric sheet for Mambo Number no. 5 by Lou Baker, the most sophisticated piece of sonic weaponry to be developed this side of Armageddon. The burning chair begins to levitate, walls wailing in forgotten tongues. Prepare yourself! I yell to the Neils. Prepare yourself, the demon! It manifests! Steal your nerve! Get ready! And now, the conclusion. And then... And then... White light. Nothing but endless emptiness. The centre of a snowstorm. The gap beneath the poem. A vast and deadly silence. And boring. I, I forgot to say boring. Time appears to have no meaning here. The very concept of time begins to feel like the dull anecdote of a footballer heard across a dinner table. A story so full of nothing, it becomes an unmappable negative shape. But then, slowly, I feel myself adjusting until I realize I am, in fact, still standing in the same room as before, arms outstretched, a smoldering armchair in front of me, the room silent save the crackle of charred upholstery. The Neils look at me strangely. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I say. I've, I, I, I've forgotten the next line. The director approaches the front of the stage. Well, uh, don't worry, he says. We can, uh, we can just end things here. A stagehand runs on and extinguishes the flames. <coughs> you sure, I say. But the rest of the actors have already cleared the stage. I catch up with them and grab a handshake. Good luck, says the actor, formerly known as Mrs. Neil. Nice to meet you, dude, says the actor, formerly known as Mr. Neil. (laughs) 
The director walks me to the stage door. Thanks for coming down, Sebastian, he says. I, uh, I really like the energy you brought to the part. We, uh, we really see this exorcist as an enigmatic. Uh, he's a, he's a layered character, and you really brought the, you really brought the mystery. Of course, like, you know if it was down to me, I'd be offering you the part right here, right now. But we, 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 we do have still two more people to see today. You know, you know how it is. Thanks, Andrew, I say, handing him back the exorcist jacket. It was just a pleasure to come down and read for it, you know? Andrew waves away the humility. No, 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 I mean it. I really think the part is yours. I know I shouldn't say, but I really think it is. Somewhere in the stalls, I can hear the faint clucking of producer Karen Mogg and casting director Bertrand Hesseltine. Although I can't make out the subject of their amusement, I am pretty sure that they are laughing about me, specifically the size of my hands, something that I am very sensitive about. I reach the stage door, but hit the exit bar too hard. The sound ricocheting through the empty theatre. Everyone stops and looks at me. Curse these hands, these stupid, oversized flesh claws that fool children into thinking that I am trying to grab them. My hands that make me look a lot nearer than I actually am. No actor of the stage should have hands this size. These hands that appear downstage when the rest of me is upstage. These scene-stealing, focus-pulling pillows of corned beef. How I wish I could pocket them forever. Outside the theatre... Toronto is bitter and vacant. The grey October light extends the car park into the sky. After 50 minutes, I finally managed to catch a bus back to my apartment. My apartment with my ex-girlfriend's bicycle still in the hallway and a week of washing up piled in the sink. My bedroom watched over by framed A2 posters of films I once loved, but now despise with a squeaky door that goes arg whenever the wind blows through the cracked window. Arg. 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 Sitting on my father's old bureau, the audition script, the last days of The Exorcist. I flick through my lines, all scored with my dying highlighter. Father Stuart, we will almost certainly all die here tonight, but if I have anything to do with it, our ends will not be in vain. Our, our ends will not be in vain. Yeah. The ghost is incredibly raw, incredibly fiercely original. I would very much like to blah, blah, blah. Funny. This morning, for one brief moment, 
I truly felt as if I was this Father David Stewart. Yes, Father David Stewart, cover star of the Vatican's in-house magazine no less than four times, head psychic bodyguard for John Paul II on his deathbed, first exorcist to be awarded the prestigious Obsidian Cross after successfully closing that Hellgate in the middle of Euro Disney back in 2002, Father Dave Stewart, the Black Kingfisher to his students. For one moment this morning there felt no separation between my mind and his voice but now already the bond is lost. These words now feel nothing more than a small fire on the horizon. Someone else's story. Someone else's problem. My fridge begins to buzz louder and louder. I punch it. The buzz returns to normal. Outside, the endless drone of the ring ride. I have to play text into the bin. I cook a potato waffle in my toaster and eat it in a sandwich with ketchup. Then I watch an entire DVD box set about an aromatherapist who solves murders. The theater does not call. Nor the next day. Nor the next. Nor the next. Sunday lunchtimes, the nightclub on the corner of my street hosts a speed dating event. I agree to go with my old school friend, Christopher. Christopher arrives at the nightclub wearing a t-shirt with a picture of Droopy on it. Beneath the picture of Droopy, the caption, Boo. Boo, I say. Uh, like the, the pet name that couples give each other. Like, hey boo. Like that. You're overthinking it, says Christopher. The women sit at little tables, spread evenly across the dance floor, the tables alternating black and white like chess tiles. Every three minutes, a bell rings. The men get up and move to the next table, and the whole ordeal starts over again. Hello. What's your name? What do you do? The club still reeks of last night's alcohol. My feet stick to the floor when I move. 
Christopher ends up being in front of me. This means every single time I sit down to begin a date, the woman says something about how weird the last guy was. I spend almost all of my speed dates just learning incidental facts about Christopher. He says he was the only son of Sir Jeremy Revlon, the cosmetics magnate. He, he claimed to be the inventor of the oxygen mojito. He said he was chunk from the Goonies. He insisted that bees were instruments of class war. He claimed Vladimir Nabokov invented the quarter-length trouser. He said his spirit animal was a cattle grid. He claimed to have invented the phrase, you go girl, and so on. I feel like I'm actually on a date with Christopher, just one experienced through a membrane of baffled women. Okay, refresh your break, everyone. Just keep the conversations going. We're going to restart in 15 minutes. See you then. I managed to fit two beers into the 15-minute break. The barman pours me a tequila for Dutch courage. I think it's on the house, but it's actually $8. Okay, back to the tables, everyone. Good luck. Uh, so, Sebastian, tell me, says my speed date, where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? Being an actor, I have spent my life imitating much happier, more confident people. I know breathing exercises that can relax one's posture. I can dilate my pupils by staring at a spot behind someone's head. I know that confident people under-explain. They gloss over questions like these, their net worth being a sum that they solved long, long ago. Well, uh, I'm already doing what I love. Very lucky like that, I suppose. I say, uh, so, more the same, probably. I accidentally make a hand gesture and then quickly bury my huge monster hands back beneath the table. Maybe I can come see you in something, says my speed date, whose name is Siobhan, as it turns out, a pharmacist. Uh, I'm just about to start rehearsals, actually. I lie. Yeah, I've just been cast in this new ghost story. I'm playing a priest. This, uh, this guy who doesn't play by the rules. It's called Last Days of the Exorcist. It's being directed by Andrew Schnezelbart, if you know him. No, says Siobhan, but wow. Actually, I say, actually, that's a lie. I, uh, I, I didn't get the part, actually. Siobhan reaches for my hand. She reaches for it, and I want to pull it away, but she takes it. She takes my hand, and she never lets go. Two years later, Siobhan and I move into a house together. We have dinner parties once a month. Many pharmacists attend. I get a job walking dogs in the neighbourhood. Each night, we sit in our back garden and tell stories of our youth. Soon after Siobhan's mother dies, we cry and cry and cry and promise each other we will never leave the other behind. Christopher dies in a yacht fire the same year. We attend the funeral together 
along with a large group of women with incredibly tonged hair. Their exquisite eyeliner does not run, I notice. For the anniversary of our first meeting, I take Siobhan to a new restaurant, the well-reviewed one at the top of the Shangri-La Tower. The restaurant is punky in a professional kind of way. Little neon mushroom clouds animate themselves around us. We sit hand in hand across the table, her fist like a pearl in my hulking mollusks. No, no, Sebastian, no more self-deprecating big hand similes. Remember what your therapist told you. Poets are cunts. You don't need to convert everything into self-pity, not anymore. Not now you have her. Outside the restaurant, snow falls on Toronto like an old, badly tuned TV set. You know, I say to Siobhan, recently I've, uh, <laughs> I've been thinking again about that play. That final audition before I met you. I mean, I, we probably wouldn't have met if it hadn't been for that. And it meant so much to me. I, mean, I, I cared about that role, like, I can't tell you. There was something about that character. To be an exorcist, you know, someone who could, who could diagnose the darkness, someone who could drag the, the monster from the mist. When I lost that part, I felt a hole open up inside me. A hellgate, you could say. But then, when when you came along, I, I I felt like, I felt like I was seeing that exorcist again. I I, I was seeing it in you, Siobhan. You see, I was haunted by loneliness. But then, you came into my house, and you. You closed that Hellgate. You closed it once and for all. I open the ring box and I ask Siobhan to marry me. She says yes. I give her the ring. She puts it on her finger. A nosy old man on the other side of the room begins to applaud. Mind your own business, old man! Oh God, Sebastian, says Siobhan. I can't, this is, this is really happening, isn't it? I, I, I can't believe it's happening. At that moment, the waiter brings over our meal. A huge bucket of steamed broccoli. Uh, do, do you have anything else? I ask. The waiter is incredibly offended. This restaurant only serves steamed broccoli, sir, and... We make a pretty big thing about it, too, he gestures to the menu. It just says, broccoli. You like broccoli, says Siobhan. I, I, I know, I say. It's just, I, I, I just feel like I've had broccoli for every meal for, you know, about as long as I can remember. On the other side of the window, the snowfall ends. The city 
re-emerging from the white noise, a steady, glowing transmission. What is it? asks Siobhan. Sebastian, what's wrong? Her face looks like a massive, beautiful anvil falling from the sky. Uh, n- nothing, I say. Uh, excuse me a second. I head towards the bathroom, then duck into the elevator. Coatless and freezing, I leave the restaurant, hailing a cab to the occult book district. I hammer on the door of Patterson's until old Patterson himself lets me in. This better be good, says the old man. Ghosts that can conjure ridiculous plot twists, I blurt. Have you ever heard of anything? Patterson leads me into the back room and drops a leather-bound tomb onto the table. The book falls open on an illustration of a grey figure with twelve arms, blood-red eyes, its mouth an endless black leg. Oh. You bastard. You cheap, nasty bastard. Now I see. Old man Patterson brings out a bowl of steamed broccoli. Would you like some... Fuck off, Patterson! I know you're just masking the smell of ghost piss. You're nothing more than... Psychic Febreze, you little dick! You're not real! I run back into the street, heart pounding. Toronto is not real. None of this is real. The horizon slopes, the snowy pavement leaping up to greet me, and now I am on my hands and knees, blinded by the headlights of the stopped traffic, my limbs amputated by the cold. Are you okay? Asks a pedestrian. Do you want me to, uh... Do you want me to call someone? Mambo number five. I mutter. Pardon? Mambo number five. Jump up and down and move it all around. Shake your head to the sounds. Put your hands on the ground. Take one step left and one step right. One to the front and one to the side. Clap your hands once. The streets begin to dissolve around me. All of Toronto now phasing out of cognition. The Scarborough Bluffs the Hockey Hall of Fame, the Prince Edward Viaduct System, my new house with all that expensive kitchen remodelling, all the neighbourhood dogs I look after, Sylvester, Abraham, Waffles, my entire life in all its rich and complex Canadian splendour evaporating into nothingness. Even her especially her, probably still sitting in that restaurant, waiting for my return. Siobhan ceases to exist.
opening my eyes. I am once again standing in the Neil's front room, still mid-exorcism, the Neil's still wearing their little crucifix hats, our faces lit by the diminishing flames. The Neil's look at me desperately for reassurance, like a pair of vomity dogs. What? I say. Sorry, says Mr. Neil. Uh, Never mind, I say. The house begins to shake. The walls yawn with evil, the ceiling churning into a whirlpool of smoke. I run upstairs to my suitcase, pop the secret compartment, retrieve my Glock 37, then run back downstairs, my head aching with false memories. Had that entire hallucination been compressed into just a couple of minutes? Keep charting! I yell, gun aloft. Every bullet in the magazine is laser engraved with the entire text of the King James Bible. Oh, and uh, and be aware, this ghost, it can conjure incredibly convoluted plot twists. It really has very, very little respect for our time and intelligence. So, uh, just stay sharp. Yeah. The Neils return to their chanting. Immediately, the flame turns blue the walls dissolving into black ash. The room fills with bloody howls, like an elephant in a car crusher. It's weakening, I can feel it. Soon it's gonna be forced to materialize. We just have to remember who we are and what the point is, okay? And FYI, the point is shooting a ghost in the face, okay? That is the only purpose for any of this. That's the only closure we care about. So if you start to feel like the story is drifting away from that, if you start to feel like you're learning some kind of hacky emotional lesson about how to be in the world, you just need to reject it, okay? Reject it. That heartfelt epiphany brewing inside you, it's just the ghost trying to subvert the plot. You've got to swiftly and decisively undercut that bullshit before it takes over completely. Just, just remember who you are, Neil. Remember that you don't deserve a happy ending. A scream rips a hole in the wall beside me. A shadowy creature rushing forward, arms outstretched. The creature skitters over a coffee table and crashes to the floor. End simulation, says Professor Feudelberg stepping out of the wall. The living room vanishes and the three of us are once again standing on the holodeck of the Balthazar. Armitage chucks my shoulder. Nice shooting, Carter, but next time I get to be the exorcist. Sorry to interrupt, says the professor, but I thought you should know that whilst you three have been playing hollow games, Galactic no. Peace has no. just been... De- no, 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 A little bit of Rita's no, all I need, no, a little bit of Tina's no, all I see, a little bit of Sandra in the sun, a little bit of Mary. The room darkens, and the three of us are once again back in the Neil's house. A charred, smoke-filled lounge, the ghost gurgling inside the walls. I slap Mr. Neil. Oh man, concentrate! Don't let it derail you into some kind of epiphany about the follies of man. We're not letting it off the hook that easily. The mirror above the mantel slides up 
revealing a hidden room inside which 30 little orange men applaud my words. Congratulations, says Willy Wonka, swiveling his chair towards us. That was the final test. It was all a test, no. dear boy. I had to see if you were worthy. No. And now the chocolate factory oh, can be... Oh, 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 a little bit of Rita's all I need, a little bit of Tina's all I see, a little bit of Sandra in the sun, a little bit of Mary all night long. I grab Mr. Neil. Come on, man. It can't keep throwing plot twists at us forever. Christ, that last one was insanely patronising. God, it really thinks we're some shit-munching sons of bitches. Keep going, keep going. Mr. Neil removes his mask. Beneath the prosthetic disguise, an exact copy of my face. Mrs. Neil does the same, whipping off her plastic skin, my eyes and beard beneath. Welcome home, number eight. No. I'm sorry, father, says the other one. Your instincts were right. You are a clone. The whole ghost charade was staged to bring you back to us. It was all a, a, it was a ruse to reunite as a family. Now you finally understand why you felt so so different or you're no unforgivable oh my god no a little bit of Monica in my life a little bit of Erica by my side a little bit of Rita's all I need a little bit of Tina's all I see the mirage dissolves the living room now dense with smoke I can hear the chanting from my dream the ancient language spoken only within the deepest ring of hell the ghost is here with us. It is here. The name of Christ compels you. The name of Christ compels you. The name of Christ compels you. The smoke begins to clear. The Neils have disappeared. No, there on the floor. Mrs. Neil sits, cradling her husband, blood spreading across his chest and neck. Mr. Neil looks up, eyes wide, his jaw slack and trembling, as if he were trapped in the path of some terrible, invisible beast. It takes mere seconds for the bullet wound to kill him. Shortly after, the police arrive and arrest me. Yep, we've been looking for this one, says the detective, as his deputy puts on the cuffs. He escaped from Parkside Sanitarium last month. The lunatic thinks he's some kind of hot priest. He's a monster, says Mrs. Neil. He came into our house talking about monsters, but he was he, he was the, the real monster, the, the, the real monster all along, you okay, could say. And that meant that like, he was the thing that he was okay, searching scary. for all, oh all along. No, 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 a little bit of honor in my life, a little bit of Erica by my side, a little bit of Rita's all I need, a little bit of Tina's all I need. The police vanish. 
my hands now uncuffed. Mr. Neil rematerializes, standing in the corner like a fucking idiot, just like before the room refilling with smoke and noise. Somewhere in the far distance, but also somehow inside the room, the outline of a figure coalescing in the smoke, 12 arms, double hinged, stretched towards us. I check the gun, empty, or is that a twist or is it really empty? I mean, which of those two possibilities sounds more like a hackneyed contrivance to force an emotional denouement? Concentrate, David. Concentrate. I said, keep chanting, you bastards. But the Neils are paralysed with fear, backs pressed against the wall. Get out then. Go on, before it's too late. What do you care? Bleats Mr. Neil. You don't care about us. In fact, you don't care about the living at all. I mean, we might as well just die right here for all you care. Good point. What? Yeah, that's right. For a moment, I forgot. I actually don't care what happens to you guys. Because if I did care, if I did care, then that would suggest that all these hallucinations have somehow helped me develop some kind of new compassion for human life, you know, that by hallucinating a four-year romance with a pharmacist in Toronto or hallucinating that I murdered you by mistake, I'm now going to somehow miraculously come to, to value the simple, honest lives of dickheads like you, but I won't say that, Neil. I will never, ever care about you because learning to respect you sounds exactly like the kind of hack bullshit emotional closure that saves a ghost from being shot in the face. Oh, I suppose defeating the ghost doesn't even matter. The real battle was for my humanity. Oh, what a twist. Author, author, you fucking hack. You know, this ghost, he thinks he's so clever, but it's like, Christ, anyone can read a screenwriting manual. I'm not falling for it. Sorry, hell beast. I've got some script notes for you, Jonathan Nolan. This is a story about shooting a ghost in the face and sending it back to hell and that is it that's all it is it's not about the whole thing turning into a big metaphor for something else it's not about me as a character growing or changing it's certainly not about you slubs living or dying so basically in short fuck you do whatever you want I don't care no fuck you and actually you're right Neil the dead are more interesting than the living. For one, there's just more of them, a lot more. So in terms of statistics, the more interesting party is probably going to be on the other side of the line. Don't you think? Mozart, Einstein, etc., etc. And you know what? Confronting death and losing is pretty much the only interesting thing that happens to someone. Before that, it's just hairstyles and food categories and secretly looking at each other's asses. So I'm sorry if I prefer my company with a little more substance. And yes, I recognize that word sounds weird considering ghosts are invisible and don't weigh anything. We're leaving then. I don't, I don't care. The howl runs through us. Gravity eases away. Ashtrays, mugs, spare change floating into the air. Through a corridor of crimson light, the abomination comes. 
arms outstretched towards us. The Neils scramble from the room. I hear the front door slam. They could be immediately hit by a car outside for all I fucking care. I am so unbelievably, horrendously ambivalent about them. Jesus Christ in heaven, give me strength. Give me the power of your divine equivocation, your holy ambivalence to life and death. Grant me this gift. Deliver me from these cheap emotional payoffs so that I might fulfill my holy purpose. The creature is inside the room. I realize now just how accurate the daughter's finger painting had been. The creature is blurry. A 12-foot, badly rendered cockroach, limbs stretching out across the ceiling. I take aim. Well, that's fucking that, then. The demon closes in, its footsteps burning through the carpet, the air between us whirling with levitating knickknacks, my back now pressed against the wall as the creature advances. I throw my empty gun at its mandibles. There is no denying the boundless creative energy of this monster. I, for one, have been thoroughly bowled over by its presence, something that I can describe as nothing less than groundbreaking, thoroughly challenging. The bar was certainly raised, although I must admit that I wish it had rated my intelligence as highly as it rates its own. Some of those hallucinations were very ITV. Of course, of course, this could also be a hallucination. The whole hero dies and fails quest twist. I mean, nothing else has been real. Why should this be any different? And, uh, you know, having no twist, that is in itself a kind of twist, right? I mean, these days, am I right? I I mean, if only I could just, if I could just undercut my death somehow. If I could undercut it, then maybe the illusion would just dissolve away like all the others. The creature looks down at me. Red eyes in a shifting black mass. Hey, demon, I say, holding my Bible over my crotch. Check out... sunlight catching dust as it climbs the air above my bed. In a corner I can't see, a voice cries out, the words quiet at first, but then louder, slowly taking shape in my mind. He's awake, it cries. He's awake. Fingers curl around my hand, a wet cheek against my face. At last, says the voice, you came back to me. 
And now there are many hands moving across me, doctors and nurses urgently adjusting my body, their language quiet and secret and full of miracles. A light blinds my left eye, then my right. A plastic mask uncups my face, the world roaring into focus. The styrofoam tiles, the hospital ward. And then I see her. And it all comes back in an instant. Looking down at me, face streaked with tears. My wife. Splarksonoid Wandugalax. After all my adventures, it appears that in truth I have not moved at all, and my body remains in the same place it has been for the last four months, the coma ward of the Royal Excelsior Hospital on the second moon of the Cryopop Gazudalanx and the Spore Nebula. Splarksonoid, I whisper. I had th- the most incredible dream. There was a a battle, a a fight between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And it went on and on. I mean, it felt like it was wrapping up several times, but then for some reason it just just kind of kept on going. But but I, I, I held on, my love. I held on. And I won. That's right, says my wife, her eyes pink oceans. You won. This is the story of Kevin Custlordius Wandugalax, a simple blog operator who fell into a coma after being hit on the head by a flagged schnezer. Through my coma, I came to believe I lived on another planet, a planet far, far away, a planet with a single yellow sun. I believed that I was a religious man, a man for whom the mortal world was nothing more than a badly lit road through the endless land of the dead. A man who answered a calling to guide the living along this road, for they were stupid and ugly and, quite frankly, needed all the help that they could get. In the end, my whole adventure proved to be nothing more than an incredibly convoluted metaphor for my subconscious battle against brain injury. But now... Finally awake, I realise the real adventure can now begin. The adventure of recuperating from a serious injury on a planet with no concept of a welfare state at all. A planet where brain surgery costs around 150,000 grabs, not including hospital charges, physician's fees, bills for anaesthesia, charges for physical therapy, medications and other post-op treatments, not to mention scrobulon tax very little of which is covered by the insurance package offered to a blog operator such as myself Splarksonoid I say, help me help me to the window together we look out over the twisted glass spires of Glax our mandibles pressing against the glass, our breath slowly fogging the scene I draw my wife close Smell her hair, the past filling me like a novelty egg timer. The sun rises over the city, 
and then immediately sets again. After all, a day on Glax only lasts 28 seconds. We watch the hospital courtyard, many stories below us, peppered with tiny Glaxians wandering back and forth, talking on their mobile phones, each of them in their own separate little world, their shadows spinning beneath them as the sun chucks itself across the sky. Some of those phone conversations were probably bad, we reasoned, and some of them were probably good. Patients relaying diagnoses, sharing secrets, reordering their futures in little phone calls as they wove in and out of each other on the concrete below, walking in their little circles, doubling back and forth, each in their own little story bubble, the insides of which neither I nor Splarksonoid will ever know. When a day is as short as this, who can deny the endlessness of time, the infinite possibilities of existence? There are so few things that we can ever know for certain. Here, on a planet that has 500 different words for kiss, a planet of lilac clouds that sing before they storm, a planet that recently passed a law giving trees the vote, and it openly worships the glowing excrement of talking birds. On a planet like this, anything might be possible. And is. Okay, I think that's it. That's the end of the Exorcist Dave Stewart story. What are you doing tonight, Ross? Uh, do you want to come to the pub or do some adult stuff, like do your taxes, build a cabinet or some shit? Uh, no, thank you. I'm going to go into my office and shout about ghosts for three hours. My, my neighbours, I, I think they hate me. They must... They must really hate me. Do you know what? I give them chocolates at Christmas and they just look at those chocolates like they're drugged. There is no trust between our households but what can I do what can I do I, I love making <laughs> I love making imaginary advice and uh, you're disturbing my neighbor's dinner by shouting check out my big square penis uh, um, well that's just part of that's just part of the the modern podcasting experience okay this is the part where I ask for money strap in um I want to keep making imaginary advice. If you'd like more stories, I need your help making them. Uh, one of the things that I love about imaginary advice is that I get to create stories that nobody else would ever let me make. Uh, I'm still learning, of course. Uh, imaginary advice, well, it, it, it's basically just a set of massive crash mats that I can hurl myself at once a month. And even when it fucks up, I think that the, the results are still, are still interesting, right? 
Um, so currently I receive about £120 a month through Patreon and I am so, so grateful to those 28 people that support the podcast. I'm still minus hosting expenses and other fees. That leaves about £100 per episode and episodes take about two weeks to see through from writing to recording uh, to editing. So uh, currently the podcast has about 1,500 listeners. So if I just got a few more people signed up to patron to give five dollars every month then i could get myself to a place where i don't actually lose money on every episode i know i know i I got i got real with you guys don't sign up if you're super poor or you don't have a regular salary i don't want your money um alternatively you could always just post about the show online because that also makes like a huge difference so um thank you if you've ever done that as well um yeah i'll put a link to my patreon page in the liner notes of this episode okay enough about that i'd really like to do another dave stewart story at some point i mean i think it would have to be a prequel seeing as he's he's now trapped inside a kind of narrative babushka doll living out an alternate reality as a brain damaged alien but um you know maybe we could do yeah maybe we could do like a an earlier story with uh Dave Stewart back in the Academy or, or do that Euro Disney Hellgate story I don't know maybe we can reveal why he shares the same name as that guy from the Eurythmics seriously though just look up what Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics looks like now and tell me that he doesn't look like the most badass exorcist you've ever seen okay this has been Imaginary Advice I'm Ross Sutherland thanks for listening bye